0: One of the lawyers, I was checking in, we started talking, and what he said to me was something like this. He said, well, Mitch, listen, if you want to go to law school, if you want to be a lawyer, you've got to make that happen. After all, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Do you want to be on your side of the counter and check people in for a living, or do you want to be on the other side of the counter, living your passion
1: I'm Brian Creamer. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is making smaller shifts. It's the small shifts in our lives that can create epic outcomes. Your journey to be more deeply connected into the life you truly deserve starts right now. Welcome to Humanly Possible, a podcast focused on small shifts that can make epic differences in our lives and at work. I'll introduce our guest, who's someone I admire. He's a great friend and am totally honored to have him on the show. Um, in addition to bringing on my friend Mick, Mitch Jackson, I want to tell you just a little bit about him. Uh, he's the 2009 Orange County Trial Lawyer of the Year and 2013 California Litigation Lawyer of the Year. He's also one of the most well known active trial lawyers on social media, and I can vouch for that. He's been profiled in best-selling marketing books and dozens of publications and platforms, including Inc., Mashable, Wall Street Journal. And during the past several years, Mitch has presented cutting-edge business legal marketing techniques at the Tony Robbins Business Mastery with his good friend and also a good friend of mine, David Meerman Scott. Uh, Mitch is the founder of the Global Legal Minds Mastermind uh, and has written a new book, which is called The Ultimate Guide to Social Media for Business Owners. Uh, professionals and entrepreneurs. Ironically, I have written one of the chapters that's in that book. So uh, definitely pick it up. If for anything, read all the other chapters but mine. I'm just kidding. Which was, So that was a number one bestseller on Amazon and top number one new release in two categories. Mitch's friends
0: know of him as the streaming lawyer. Mitch,
1: welcome. Thank you so much for being
0: here. Brian, thank you for having me. I'm excited about this show. I love some of the interviews that you've done and... The book's awesome because of kind human beings just like you who took the time to contribute chapters. Most of the chapters were written by experts like you. That's what makes the book so good. So it's good to be here, and I'm looking forward to the interview. Well, such a good good thing. You've always been um,
1: I, somebody that... Uh, I think of as, as just, you know, you can always count on Mitch. He's, he's just, he's a very reliable, smart, incredible human being. And to have you on the show and talk about not just the streaming side, which is what I think actually most people in, in our circles are together have learned about you, but you've, you've built a reputation in your industry getting up to that point. And I'd love to talk with you about one thing that, you know, look, just jumping right into the shifts in your own life. What's a small shift at the time in your life, but it ended up being a big, bigger shift or a big shift for you?
0: Well, I think it comes down to the decisions that we make, both both bad and good, right? And one of those decisions, Brian, uh, was probably reflected, although it's not what I want to talk about, about practicing law, about being a lawyer and a trial lawyer before the internet, before social media. We met after everything happened, and after social media. uh, rolled out and got some traction. But I think the reason I gave myself permission to put myself out there as a lawyer on social media was because of some things that happened early on in life. And one of those things happened after graduating from college. I was living up in Lake Tahoe, California for a couple of years, and I actually helped open up Caesars Tahoe. I was working the front desk at the time, checking people in. Now, This environment was not new to me. I grew up on a dude ranch, a guest ranch in Tucson, Arizona. That's what my mom and dad owned. And I always thought I wanted to get into the hotel industry, the resort industry. We had guests from all over the world, Brian. Uh, Come and stay with us. Uh, People you've heard about, John Wayne, Walt Disney, Morley Safer from 60 Minutes, Rock Huts, and a lot of interesting celebrities. And I had the opportunity to kind of see what they were like in the real world, as opposed to what everyone watched on the movies or on TV. Completely different, right? You already know this. and uh, But it was an eye-opener for me. So fast forward to graduating from the University of Arizona, moving up to Lake Tahoe, checking people in at the hotel. I thought that's what I wanted to do, become a general manager and open up new properties around the world. I realized after the first year at Caesar's, it's not what I wanted to do. I wasn't passionate about it. I had an interest in becoming a lawyer, but I never took that step. I never made the decision. I never made the commitment to sit for the LSAT, which is the test, uh, we take before, uh, uh applying to law schools. And, you know, I was doing what I was doing. I was a ski bomb in the winter and I windsurfed all, all day long in the summers. And it was a great life, but it wasn't what I wanted to do for a living. So we had the American Bar Association. Have a conference at Caesars, and we hosted, I'm going to guess, probably about a thousand lawyers from around the world at the property. And, you know, me, I like to talk, I like to chat with people. And one of the lawyers uh, I was checking in, we started talking. And what he said to me was something like this He said, Well, Mitch, listen, if you want to go to law school, if you want to be a lawyer, you've got to make that happen. After all, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Do you want to? be on your side of the counter and check people in for a living? Or do you want to be on the other side of the counter, living your passion, building out your practice and and being the person that's being checked in to the resort, being checked into the type of life that you want? And it really made me think, I love the people I was working with. It's a great career, the hotel industry but it wasn't for me. And what I hadn't done up to that point, this is two years out of college, is I hadn't made the decision, I hadn't made the commitment to hop over that counter and be the person that was getting checked into the property. And the metaphor, the analogy uh, really took hold for me. It, it, It kind of reminded me about the power of decisions and taking action on those decisions, Brian. And real quick, let me just wrap this up full circle. The reason I'm bringing this up is when a friend of mine overheard this conversation and she heard me talking about law school and she heard me about wanting to do something else with my life, Um, she reminded me of a story I told her about my high school years. You were a high school wrestler, I believe, right? And so that's what I did in high school. I was an athlete in high school. I did a lot of crazy things. My senior year of high school, I'm looking up from the football field. It's 110 degrees. I'm looking up at A Mountain, watching hang gliders fly off of A Mountain. We're down sweating, it's hot, we're in full pads in August and here they are up in the cool desert air enjoying you know, the beautiful scenery around Tucson, Arizona. And I talked to a friend of mine and I talked to my mom and she said, well, if you wanna learn how to hang glide, Mitch, you can watch them all season long or you can go down to the Summit Hut in Tucson and take some lessons, go to a ground school, see if that's for you. And so my buddy and I, along with my mom's encouragement, Signed up for ground school lessons to hang glide and learn the sport one slow, small step at a time. A year later, we're flying all over Arizona, all over Southern California. We had our hang four expert pilot licenses. And it's because we took that we made that decision and then we took action. Fast forward a couple of years to Lake Tahoe, when my friend heard this conversation, she reminded me of that story from the football field, looking up at A Mountain, thinking about hang gliding, but not actually taking the steps until we did. And she said, Mitch, you need to do what your mom told you to do years ago. You need to make a decision to sit for the LSAT, to get into a law school and start building the life that you want to do. So Brian, for me, it was it was learning the power of decisions, both good and bad, and then acting on those decisions. When I make bad decisions, it's a learning experience. We all make bad decisions. However, when you make good decisions, it makes you feel good. It propels you forward in life. And uh, hopefully you never look back because there's just so much to look forward to. Oh man what well, you know what I love about that is um
1: it is you know it was kind of like one of those split moment decisions um you know where it had a profound effect on the rest of your life, the rest of your career the rest of your you know i would have, i would imagine like just all kinds of things that rolled out from that, which eventually became you moving into a life of uh law and uh it's such a um It's, you know, depending upon the perspective of who you ask, there's so many different ways that you can look at law, especially in the last year, Um, dare I say, like everybody's got a different perspective on how law works and maybe we've become more educated, maybe we haven't, but as you were coming into your career, what, what fascinated you about the law? What made you shift so hard into this career that made you want to get into it?
0: Well, I was a first year. I was the first person in my family to my close family, my immediate family to graduate from college, much less go to law school. So wasn't really sure what I was getting myself into. It really wasn't what I thought it was going to be from the very beginning. Um, the driving or the motive for me was it was like athletics. It's very competitive, especially as a trial lawyer, whoever prepares and practices the best. Uh, who, who can step into that courtroom and, and develop rapport with the jury to become that leader in the courtroom, to know the law, the evidence, the procedure, but also have people skills, right? I realized that's what it took to be successful in court. So not having grown up in the industry, what I did notice right away, Brian, was it wasn't what I thought it was going to do, going to be. And if I wanted to design and craft and create the type of life that I wanted to live, I was going to have to start doing things my own way. Once again, it comes down to decisions. I immediately started trying cases. The first couple of cases I tried, I did in a way that I watched other lawyers while I was in law school as a law clerk, as a, uh, how they tried their cases. It didn't feel good. It didn't feel natural. And I realized, okay, I need to be myself. I can't speak like Brian Kramer. I can't make an argument uh, like, you know, my my partner, Lisa, or your awesome uh, wife, Courtney. You have to be yourself. And I think, once again, I made a decision, my third trial in, and it was a fairly substantial trial, to try the case as Mitch Jackson. How would I do it, my personal right? And you already know where I'm going with this, but for the first time, I felt like I connected with the jury. For the first time, I felt like they trusted me to guide them, to take them by the hand and guide them uh, through the trial process. And that's what happened. I also, for the first time, didn't try my case in chronological order. Generally back then, what we were taught is you share the facts and the evidence in chronological order. That's the way we live our lives. We get up in the morning, we go through our day, we make good and bad decisions, and then we call it a night and we put our head on the pillow. Well, a lot of trial lawyers present their cases that way. And what I did in that third trial is I actually went immediately to the meat of the case. It was a tragic, wrongful death case involving a jet ski accident. And we immediately started with, at the scene of the collision, through the father's eyes as he rode his jet ski up and looked at his son floating in the water, looked at the other person who caused the accident, and we started the presentation of our case at that point. Uh, bringing in witnesses, bringing in evidence. Once I laid that foundation so that the jury could immediately wrap their head around what happened, we took a step back and we filled in the blanks about what happened a week earlier through the family vacation in chronological order uh, up to the moment of that tragic collision. And a lot of lawyers I know had never tried a case that way. For me, it just felt normal. Like, let's let's cut to the chase. The jurors don't want to be there, right? Nobody wants to be there. The jurors don't like lawyers. They've got other things to do with their life. So I wanted to capture their attention immediately. So I built upon that approach over the years, um, trying cases in ways that other lawyers don't, uh, trying to be unique, trying to create memorable experiences in a courtroom. Fast forward to today, Doing the things that you teach, doing the things a lot of marketing and branding experts teach to capture the attention of a jury, to respect their time and attention, and to actually empower them. I think that's key, Brian. By the way, you ask a lawyer a question, you're going to get a long answer. So I apologize for that. I really do. I don't mean to ramble on, but this is really important. Everybody talks about storytelling in today's world, right? Right. It's not new. It's something that really good lawyers have been doing for hundreds of years, right? But storytelling is one of the most powerful ways to share a message. Now, here's the thing, though. If all you do is tell a good story, what you're doing is you're entertaining your audience. And no, no more and no less. With the jury, what we have to do is tell a good story through evidence and procedure and through witnesses. But we also have to concurrently empower our audience to take action. Once that jury leaves the courtroom and goes back into the jury deliberation room, we don't talk to them anymore. They're talking among themselves. So part of my success over the years has been empowering the jury and allowing them to give themselves permission to uh, come to the decision that's supported by the facts and the law. And frankly, the position my client is presenting in the courtroom so that the outcome or the result of that jury verdict is what my client's looking for. And once we took that that storytelling step to the next level of also empowering our jury, which seems pretty basic when you and I are talking about it today, but it's critically important in trial, uh, that changed everything. I always like to use anchors. Uh, They're also referred to as echoes by trial lawyers. When we're talking about evidence, we're talking about, for example, that case that I'm referring to you, if I talk about the young man uh, unfortunately passing away because of the collision, what I won't just say something like that. What I'll say is I'll incorporate in when the defendant came around at a high speed, a blind corner, spraying water up from behind this watercraft, not knowing what was on the other side of that corner, and struck my client, he killed my client's son, right? And I'll always incorporate the facts into the argument I'm trying to make so that when the jury's back deliberating, that's what they're talking about. They're not just talking about somebody being harmed or a contract being breached. They're incorporating other facts into their explanation. And so they're actually selling that case to other jurors uh, who may be on the fence as to what the right thing is to do. You know, the, you bring up a fascinating point.
1: Um, it's funny, I had a whole nother set of questions and now all of a sudden I'm like, you know, this is fascinating stuff. I got to dive into this a little bit more um, because what you're saying is is true uh, and that is what happened. And what what we're seeing right now is we don't know what truth is because it's hard to discern based upon storytelling where the truth lies, especially when there's so many sources. I know you as a lawyer, you've, you've been putting all kinds of great content out for people to know how to source the truth. Um, what do you think about that? How, how is it that we can pay attention to the, to the correct story? How do we find the right story
0: that's telling the truth? We've got to do our due diligence. And in the courtroom, in the mediation and arbitration hearings, what I like to do is bring in uh, third parties. Uh, who have nothing to gain or lose by simply sharing the facts, sharing the procedure, sharing the truth. For example, if I'm trying to show that Company A didn't follow the proper policies and procedures uh, in building something that harmed my client, I could argue that I could pay an expert to come in, or I could use a uh, a book, a manual, a set of guidelines that were created before the incident took place. Okay. And use that as my roadmap as to what the defendant did or didn't do correctly that resulted in the collapse of the wall, harming my client. So I think using third-party references and resources that were created before the item or incident happened is a great way to gain credibility in front of an audience of one across your desk, an audience of 12 in the courtroom, or in trying to share a sales point from the stage in front of an audience of 1,000. That seems to work really, really well. The other the other trick of the trade, Brian, is to only take cases that you believe in. I only represent clients who I believe in 100%. And when you believe in your client's case, and you're speaking from the heart, and that passion shows, you're not only getting ready for, for trial, you're bringing in the witnesses you need, the evidence, you're satisfying all the authenticity and foundation requirements. You're ready to go, right? You want to be like the Tom Brady in the courtroom in the fourth quarter with two minutes to play. And uh, that helps too, making sure you're selecting the right cases. Mm. That, you know, that, that just goes to show. I
1: mean, in anything you do in life, do what you believe in uh, and, and you always come out, uh, winning uh, at some point, whether you, you think you're winning at the moment or not. I totally agree with that. I'm also curious, what's one thing that um, almost seemed insurmountable in your life? like It was a massive undertaking and you were looking at it going, how am I going to get this
0: done? And what shifts did you create to make that happen? So I've never been the uh, sharpest knife in the, in the drawer. And it's because I've always focused my attention in high school. It was on sports, motocross, hang gliding, like we've talked about girls, right? Same thing in college. I managed to squeeze a, a four-year degree into a five-year experience at the university of Arizona. And I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was awesome. Um, having said all that, I think for me, Coming to the realization, checking people in at Lake Tahoe at Caesars, okay, I want to become a lawyer, but I didn't put the time in to have the grades to get into a great law school. Am I going to be able to get a good score on the LSAT that will get me into a law school? So that was the challenge. That was a very real world challenge. And what I did is I called my folks. We didn't have the internet back then. I picked up the phone, called long distance. My dad, mom said, come back down to Tucson, study your ass off for the LSAT, right? You don't have to work. You don't have to do anything for the next three months. Study your butt off and, and take the test. And that's what I did. I came home and for the first time in my life, I sat down and just from eight in the morning till eight at night, just went through practice tests and practice exams and, and got ready for that LSAT. Here's the kicker, Brian. I was ready. For the first time in my life, I was ready for an academic challenge, okay? It was very similar to how I felt Friday night playing football or on the tennis courts, or whatever it might be. So two days before the LSAT, I wake up with a swollen throat. I had tonsillitis, right? And, um, and that just knocks you off your, your feet. And I remember talking to my folks about it. My dad said, you put in three hard months, take the damn test. Take the test and let's see what happens. So I went in there uh, at about fifty percent capacity, managed to do uh, better than I thought I would for the LSAT, which then helped open up doors to get into three or four different law schools that I was interested in going to. It brought me here to Southern California in law school. I met my wife, and you know, thirty-two years later, we just celebrated our our thirty-second wedding anniversary two beautiful kids, 26 and 20. And our daughter, Brian, I think you know this, just uh, became a lawyer and is in her first year of practicing law at uh, Shepherd Mullen in Century City in Los Angeles. And when we asked AJ, why do you want to go to law school? Here's what she told us. She looked at us and said, well, I've watched what you and mom have done over the years and you guys help people. And I want to help people too. And that just warmed my heart when when." You know, when she said that, understanding that, you know, I was hoping she had a good appreciation as to how much time and effort it takes to to do a good job for your clients. But um, yeah, so for all of those reasons, those challenges, not being the smartest guy in the room, what I learned is you can compensate for all of that with hard work, with hustle, with preparation, and then for doing things in a way that other people don't do it, Right. And that to me uh, has been a fun learning experience. I can't, I'm trying to pass it along to the kids, Brian, but they won't listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) I have that
1: too. I understand. Um, Well, let's let's leave off with this one thing. I I want to, before we close out, I want to make sure that everyone has a chance to understand what is one leadership lesson that you've learned
0: in your life that changed the way you approach your life? You got to walk your talk. You got to walk your talk. It, it's not that complicated to, to lead others, to whether you know you're leading them or not. And I think with social media in today's world, there are people out there that are connecting with you and I that we've never met. Sometimes we haven't heard from them before, but they'll share a story about something we've posted, something they've watched us do, changed their lives. And for me, it's the young trial lawyers, it's law school students, right? And and business owners. And I think um, one of the things I watched my mom and dad do growing up at the ranch, one of the things I learned in the different management positions I was in before law school was the good managers were people that connected with their team on a human level. The good managers were people that uh, walked their talk and led by example. And they were also the people that cared. And I think for me, as a lawyer, trying to display those those types of characteristics, which is probably unusual for a lawyer, uh, it makes me more effective at the firm. It makes me more effective when I'm representing clients. And it certainly helps when I'm in court trying to win a case for my client.
1: Mitch thank you so much I really appreciate you being on the show today packed full of stuff we've got uh, um all areas of life covered and I want to make sure everybody has knows how to how to reach out or to find you see what you're up to and and uh and how to subscribe and all that kind of stuff so where where can everybody find you
0: well, thanks for asking. I'm all over the internet at Mitch Jackson, you guys, on all the different social platforms. And probably the best place to connect is at my social media slash legal live streaming blog, which is streaming dot lawyer. Streaming dot lawyer. We can we can start the digital dance there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to. Seeing
1: more stuff come out of uh, what's going on. I know you have a new podcast coming out as well. Uh,
0: I think you're going to be interviewing um, uh, lawyers for, uh, that, are, that are talking about what? So, that, we, we do have a new podcast and live video show coming out called The Trial Lawyer Show. It's triallawyer.show. And I'm going to be interviewing some of the top trial lawyers from across the country and around the world on how they win their cases, the art of persuasion, the art of negotiation. It's, it's going to be fun. And I can't wait to share this with my fellow trial lawyers and also with business owners and salespeople who want to raise the bar. And if it works in court, it's going to work out in the business world. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It should be fun. And we'll probably be dropping our first episode later this week. Wonderful. I can't wait. Thank you again, Mitch. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you love this
1: episode, please subscribe. We love having subscribers just like you. Download a few more episodes. And if you feel moved, we would so appreciate a review. I'd love to also hear your key takeaway. What impacted you from this episode? You can tweet me your answer and reach out on Twitter at Brian Kramer. That's Brian with a Y, Kramer with a K. And definitely be sure to join us in our Facebook group. We have just under 3,000 humans, just like you and me, looking to connect even more imperfectly. Until next time.